Let's turn to Psalm 51 this morning. As we've gone through Lent, we've had uh, kind of a common theme here in our confession of sin and and uh, this great example of uh, David and what has gone on in his life and how he writes this after uh, his involvement in sin. And he just pours his heart out before the Lord, uh, trusting in the Lord. And as we move towards uh, Palm Sunday next week and Easter and then the joys that are found on Easter morning, um, they're only joys because we understand our sin. Uh, they're joys because we understand the depth of that and what it took to wipe that sin away, and that is the finished work of Christ. So if you're able, would you stand with me, and we will read, uh, I'll read the, the uh, last, we're going to deal with the last half of Psalm 51, uh, but as we finish it up, I will read the entire psalm this morning. Heavenly Father, come upon us today with your Holy Spirit. Uh, open our eyes, uh, just enliven our hearts and our minds, that your word would come come alive to us, would come and, and live within us, that we might not only understand what it means, but we might live out what it means as well. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Psalm 51. Be gracious to me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the greatness of thy compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done what is evil in thy sight, so that thou art justified when thou dost speak, and blameless when thou dost judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, thou dost desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part thou wilt make me no wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which thou hast broken rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from thy presence, and do not take thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of thy salvation, and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners will be converted to thee. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, thou God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of thy righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, that my mouth may declare thy praise. For thou dost not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. Thou art not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, Thou will not despise. By thy favor, do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then thou wilt delight in the righteous sacrifices, in burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then young bulls will be offered on thine altar. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. Now I think most of us have heard the phrase, uh, been there, done that, and uh, I looked up its meaning because I like, you can say things, but you like to know what it means, um, to have experienced the topic under discussion to the point of boredom or complacency. Now, the origin of the phrase is traced back into the 1970s um, in the short form, been there, 
And that was listed in a movie, Carlito's Way, in 1975. It was used um, both in the book and in, in the way and in the movie. Most commonly, that phrase has been expanded a little bit from been there to been there, done that. And it's generally regarded as an American phrase. And, and the, the earliest use of it I could find in, in common language was in a Syracuse newspaper uh, when the reporter was quoting uh, the former Love Boat actress Lauren Taze concerning her unwillingness to get married again. She said, been there, done that. Okay. About a decade later, as I traced it through history, it was added again. Been there, done that, got the T-shirt. Okay. Uh, so that was added. And before long, you know, it, it, just, it you, you continued to expand it and expand it. And before long, you really could get the T-shirt that said, been there, done that. Um, so there's no real limit to what you can add to it. I, I looked up something. It was on an alternate music Pink Floyd Usenet news group. Okay. And it said, been there, done that, got the T-shirt, worn a hole in it, and now use it as a duster. <laughs> I think we beat that one to death sufficiently. Okay, but you get the idea here about what, what we're talking about. It said experience is the teacher. I've been there, done that. I know about it. I don't have to go back and do it again. Well, that was my experience and in my life. And hopefully it is a good teacher in my life. I have touched the stove, you know, if you have an electric stove, there's that little red light, and it's, if there's no uh, burners on it, there's that little red light on the stove that tells you that one of the burners is hot. And you can't always remember, or maybe you didn't use the stove, so you don't know which burner is hot or how hot it is, so you just naturally go up, and if you're like me, you start to feel the burners. And, feel, and then you find the one that is hot, and then uh, somebody else comes up and says, which one is hot? And say, don't touch it. I've burned my hand on that one before, because experience has taught me not to put your hand like that on it. You can hold your hand close to it. Um, I, I think it was a... Uh, does anybody remember creepy crawlers? You have to be a certain age to remember creepy crawlers. We used to, they used to come in an oven. It was about this square, and it was a metal mold, and you'd, you'd, it was a spider or something like that, and you'd squirt the stuff in, and then you had to bake it in the oven. Well, I didn't know if the oven was hot or not, so what I did naturally was go like this. And it was, you could go, you could hear it go, pssst. It was hot, okay? So, you know, don't touch a hot oven, okay? My experience has taught me this. Now learn from me. Learn from my wisdom. Now how many of you are going to go and touch something that is hot? Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just kind of the way we are. Well, Randy, that's your experience, and, and, and you know it doesn't always translate into everybody else. Everybody else does not necessarily learn the same lesson that I learned with the creepy crawler oven. Now Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived, went out and been there, done that, had the t-shirt. He did pretty much everything that there was, and he said it was all vanities, okay? Nothing satisfied him like being in the presence of the Lord. And he writes about that in the book of Ecclesiastes again and again and again. He says, you know what, guys, don't go and do this because I have done that and I have found no joy in it. There were temporary things that happened. Yes, it was enjoyable for a season, but it does not satisfy like being in the presence of the Lord. It does not satisfy like going in and worshiping the Lord and knowing his truth. 
Now, he tells his readers his advice, but not everybody takes it. Because sharing what we learn does not always translate. Some people have to go and still hit their head against the wall because they're not convinced that it is hard enough. They have to go and make the same mistakes that we made growing up. And, and, but you might go, oh, but, you know, I'm, I'm so much smarter than Randy and I won't make that same mistake. Now, you might be very much smarter than I am. Um, but you bang your head against the wall after I've told you it's hard, you're still going to hurt yourself. Okay, if you jump in the car and drive down Randolph at 100 miles an hour, you're probably going to hit something or hit somebody and kill somebody. Experiences don't do it, but you're smarter than I am, so you go right ahead. Okay, you may talk to somebody who has uh, been unfaithful in their marriage, and they tell you how it has ruined their life and the life of their spouse and the life of their children, and don't do it, but you think to yourself, I'm smarter than that, it won't happen to me. Judy and I lived in a funeral home back in Pennsylvania for five years. And every June, we buried a teenager. Every June. It just was common. Because they would have a graduation party, and they would all go out, and uh, sometimes it was mom and dad would actually uh, buy the, the, the liquor, and they said, we have to stay at the house and drink, Okay. Well, you tell a teenager you have to stay here. This is not always going to translate into actually staying here. But every June, somebody would go to a party, uh, would drink, would get in the car and wreck and die. And we buried a teenager every June after graduations. And every year, the same thing would happen. They would be mourning and wailing, and all their friends would come, and, and they would understand, well, how did this happen? And well, I'm never going to let this happen in my life, and I'm never going to do the same thing. And come next June, we would bury another teenager. Just was the way it was. They did not learn from the experience of others, of their friends. David says to us here very clearly He says, verse 13, I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted unto you. Now, we would love that. I mean, look at what David has done. Look at the sin he's been involved with. Look how far off the edge David has gone and the Lord has has brought him back. He says, what? Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from thy presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I'm going to teach people what it means to go and mess up and what it means to be restored. And hopefully they won't go and mess up. But that lesson just doesn't seem to translate into everybody's life in the same way that it should. David says, I'm going to teach you the mistakes I made so you can experience God's grace without having to go out and ruin your life first. That's what he's talking about here. Let me tell you the forgiveness of sin. Let me tell you about the cleansing that I have known from our Heavenly Father. Spurgeon lays it out this way for us. Therefore, the men who should teach others the ways of God are those who have themselves been pardoned. Who else can tell of the guilt of sin but men upon whom the burden of sin has pressed, who have felt the arrows of conviction in their own soul, who have been bowed into the dust because they have felt that the wrath of God rested upon them? They can speak with authority concerning what they have personally felt. When such men speak of pardoning love and of the blood which cleanses, 
How sweetly do they tell of that blessed moment when their transgressions were forgiven and their sins were covered. These are not the men to descant upon the dignity of human nature and the excellencies of virtue and the merit of moral reformation. Their story is of quite another kind. They cry, we have destroyed ourselves and all our help is found in Jesus. We are condemned and have no means of self-justification. But there is a precious blood that speaks better things than that of Abel, which pleads for us. See, this is David's plea here in Psalm 51. Learn from my mistakes. Let me teach you the stupid things that I have done and the grace of the Lord so that you won't have to do the same stupid things that I have done. You can move and experience the grace of the Lord. Spurgeon goes on, brethren, the text plainly shows us that pardoning, pardoned sinners possessed of the Holy Spirit, rejoicing in salvation and upheld in consistency of life are the chosen instruments of God for the conversion of their fellow men. If you've been forgiven of your sin, if you have professed faith in Jesus Christ and know that grace in your life, you are called to be an evangelist. You say, well, Randy, I really don't have that gift. I mean, you have the gift of the Holy Spirit that lives within you, okay? You, I bet you have one of these somewhere in your possession. Uh, if you're, you're the average uh, church-going American, you might have eight at home, okay? Go and count the number of Bibles that you have in your possession. If you're a minister, you might have 80 in, in your possession, okay? You are called to take the gospel to your sphere of influence, You are an evangelist in the way that you live and the things that flow from your mouth. You are the chosen instruments. Why? Because God's already worked his grace in you. No better example can be found. Are the the non-believers going to share the gospel? No, they're not going to do it. Are they going to tell of the excellencies of our Heavenly Father? They don't know the excellencies of our Heavenly Father. Are they going to say what it means to be cleansed from their sin and to be forgiven and have the, the guilt removed? No, they don't know what it is to have that done. We do. That's why God says, you're my instruments. You are my instruments. Continue with Spurgeon. I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted unto you. If there are any in the world who, above all others, are transgressors, these are the persons whom our own sense of love to Christ should induce us to teach God's ways. What he says is, you know... You got a sinner who lives close to you. You got a sinner in your sphere of influence. You got somebody who is not a believer. That's the person you need to target. The forgiveness of great sin, the reclaiming of a man from gross habits of vice, the deliverance of a woman who has fallen. These are the things which make the grace of God illustrious. The church of God should remember that the light is most needed where the darkness is darkest, that the physician, the, the physician is most required. Where disease is most rife. Jesus says, I didn't come to deal with the healthy people. I came to deal with the sick people. Now I have to say, it's, it's a lot of fun to hang out with the healthy people. Okay? It's a lot of fun. Not, not that we're all perfect, understand. But it's nice to be around the body of Christ. It's nice to, to be encouraged in that. But we have the antidote to the problem that the world has. And we were just like them once, Remember? There was a time you were outside of Christ and someone came to you with the antidote, the great free message of Jesus Christ. 
Restore the joy of my salvation, David says, and I'll teach sinners your way and they will be converted. That is the way that they are converted when we teach them the things of our Heavenly Father. Now there is just such great confidence in what David writes here. They shall be converted. They will be. All they need to do is hear the things of your word, hear of your great works and your great mercies, and their hearts will be changed. And David says that once he has confessed his sin, after the Lord creates in him this, this clean heart and renews a right spirit, then the Lord will restore to him the joy of his salvation. Now, now stop and, and look at Psalm 51 for a minute. I know we, we just read it. What is not mentioned there? And I know that's a pretty broad question, okay? Uh, well, yeah, there's no football mentioned. There are no cars mentioned. There's no, no. Think of David's actions, what he has been through. This is a psalm of confession. The things that are not mentioned in Psalm 51. Yeah, his sin, his sexual sin is not mentioned. His sin of murdering Uriah is not mentioned. His lying about it is not mentioned. Those are all symptoms of what has grown out of his central problem. Yes, did he sin with Bathsheba? You bet he did. Did he sin by having Uriah murdered? You bet he did. Did he lie about it for at least an entire year? You bet he did. Are those things sins? You bet they are. What does he say is the root of his problem. Verse 12, restore to me the joy of my salvation. David has not lost his salvation. He has lost the joy of his salvation. Now, we don't know when this happened or how it happened. And I wonder, how is it possible that this could even happen to a guy like David? A guy who has... Samuel called him what? A man after God's own heart. A guy who has stood and faced Goliath. A guy who was chased through the desert by Saul. Who He knew he was going to be king for all those years in the desert. He could have gotten rid of Saul at all those times. But he said, no, no, I'm not going to raise my hand against God's anointed. He goes on and on. He has seen the Lord do these wonderful things in his life. How could he possibly lose the joy of his salvation? There were some people once who, who the Lord said, I'm going to deliver you, and yes, I'm going to get you out of slavery, and you know, I'm going to take you to the promised land, and he got them up to the promised land's border, and they went, oh, there's a bunch of giants in there, and we can't go in there and take that over. Um, so then they, they wandered in the desert, and they complained, and the Lord gave them food on a regular basis. How could they forget the parting of the Red Sea. How could they forget the constant provision that the Lord had for them all of those years? But yet they did. And they wandered away and sought other gods. It doesn't say David wandered away and sought other gods. But he really did kind of do that by seeking the God of his own self. The God that would fulfill his temporal desires and his temporal, what he thought would really make him happy. He lost the joy of salvation. He lacked, he stopped looking at what the Lord had accomplished and he looked at his immediate surroundings. He took his eyes from the eternal and looked at the temporal. 
He took his eyes from the transcendence of God and looked at the eminence of this world and said, I want the eminence of this world. To have his joy restored, David understands that his heart has to be broken and the Lord has to break his heart. And what's back in verse 8, let the bones which you have broken rejoice. When the Lord corrects us, when the Lord breaks our bones, so to speak, then we can rejoice because he's doing it to draw us closer to him. Jonathan Edwards said, all gracious affections, all emotions, what we're feeling, all gracious affections that are a sweet aroma to Christ are broken-hearted affections. A truly Christian love, either to God or men, is a humble, broken-hearted love. The desires of the saints, however earnest, are humble desires. Their hope is a humble hope, and their joy, even when it is unspeakable and full of glory, is a humble and broken-hearted joy. David hasn't lost his salvation. He's lost the joy of his salvation. And I think it's true that we can say that that the more mature a believer is, the closer that that believer is to, to the Lord, the more likely that believer is to open his mouth and confess his sin and confess his own unworthiness before the Lord. We think of Isaiah. Man, maybe the best man in an entire nation. A prophet of God. And what did he say? I'm a I'm a man of unclean lips. He, he confessed it. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips. And you know what? I'm full. I'm surrounded by what? A whole people that are unclean the same way. Paul, should we say the best Christian of the first century besides Jesus? Maybe the best Christian ever. He would not want that title. He said, you know, I'm a filthy wretch. He, he said, what? Who can deliver me from this body of death? He said, I am attached to this sinful world and this sinful body. And all I want to do is do the things of Christ. And then he goes on uh, in, in chapter 7 and says, what? Uh, why do I do the things I know I shouldn't do? And I don't do the things that I know I should do. He said, I, I'm distraught. I'm, I'm distraught by my sinfulness. And all I want to do is do the things of Christ. What does sin do to us when we don't confess it? What does it do to us? A London psychologist concluded that 70% of the people he dealt with in mental institutions in England could be released if they could find forgiveness. Uh, you know, that, that's just one person's experience, and it's in England. So have to take that into consideration. Their problem was a bad conscience, and they could gain no relief from the guilt and the pressure under which they lived. The temporal world around them offered no forgiveness, no real forgiveness, no, not, not like the forgiveness that comes from our Heavenly Father, because he says what? Your sins are as far as the east is from the west. You want to talk about forgiveness? I remember them no more. Now, it's in the Old Testament we see the blood of goats and bulls and, and they would be used to atone for the sin of the people, but they had to continue to do that again and again and again because that blood was imperfect and that blood had to be, uh, that forgiveness had to be renewed once every so often. And along comes Jesus Christ whose blood is perfect and, and it says, I remember your sins no more. They are gone from me. 
That is the extent of the love and the forgiveness our Heavenly Father has for us. And, and to understand that, we have to confess that what we are and confess and take it all before the Lord. There was a man, I read a letter once about a man, and he wrote it to the IRS. And he said, I've not been able to sleep for the past year because when I filled out my income tax form, I deliberately misrepresented my income. So I'm enclosing a $150 check. And if I still can't sleep, I'll write a check for the rest. (laughs) Now, you know, how tweaked was his conscience? Partial confession, partial admittance to our guilt and sinfulness does not cut it. I mean, it will come back to haunt us because it was not, it does not release us from our sin. A complete confession is the only way that can happen. Now, I've heard from believers over the years who have told me with a straight face that the Lord has simply not given them the power as of yet to break free from this sin. So they, or this or that sin. So they continue in that sin, feeling justified that someday in the future the Lord will give them the authority and the power to break free from that sin. But until that time, it says, I'm, I'm, ho- I'm helpless. I'm a slave to that sin. When does the Lord give us the power and the ability to break free from our sins? At conversion. Why? Because the Holy Spirit comes and lives within us. The question is not lacking the power. The question is lacking the will. Man. Okay? And we know some of our wills are stronger than others. And, and, and it is nothing but a rationalization. It is nothing but ignorance to say, well, when the Lord, in His perfect timing, gives me the ability to break free from this sin, then I will. He's given you the power now. Do you have the will? Do you have a hatred of sin that is so strong that you say, I have to leave it. I have to move away from it. I've got to pursue the things of Christ. That ability is here now. It's hard. It's hard. Because sometimes we like sin. And even the sins that we don't like, they, they, they reach out and grab us. They want to hang on to us. Verse 14, 15. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God. Thou God of my salvation, then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. I can joyfully sing of your praises. When the joy of my salvation has been restored, when I know of complete forgiveness, when I know that, yes, I am a sinner before the Lord, but He makes a way for that sin to be cleansed and he comes and delivers me from it. What joy there is. What joy there is. David says, I want a life that pleases you. I want my life to have an effect upon the sinners who are around me, who do not yet know that forgiveness. And he understands that if his own life is not right, he's going to have less and less of an effect on those people who are around him. Psalm 66 says, if I regard iniquity in my own heart, The Lord will not hear me. As I've quoted this before from Peter. Peter says, man, you know why the Lord's not listening to your prayers? Because you don't treat your wife right. Okay, there is this 
this, this uh, yes, we've been forgiven of our sin, but if we, if we get something on our heart and we haven't confessed it, it is like this, this border, this uh, uh, something in the way between us and the Lord. You want to be able to minister, you want to be able to pray in, in full confidence, then, then the sin that you know you're harboring in your heart, that you know you don't want to give up, don't want to confess the Lord, confess it to the Lord. Confess it to the Lord. Verse 18. By your favor, do good to Zion, build the walls of Jerusalem. Then thou wilt delight in righteous sacrifices, in burnt offering and whole burnt offerings. The young bulls will be offered on the altar. It's not as if you can do this first and get right with the Lord. David is saying if it was that simple, we just haul out, you know, a hundred or a thousand bulls and we'd have the altar and we'd sacrifice them and we'd all be right with the Lord. He says, you have to do this first. Once you do this, what kind of sacrifice does he want? The sac- Verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, broken and contrite heart. God does not despise. And once that is right, then you can go on living in the way that he calls you to. But, but as long as we harbor those things in our hearts, they will disrupt our relationship with the Lord. See, David has a wonderful understanding of the nature and the character of our Heavenly Father. He knew that God wasn't interested in the burnt offerings of the animals until his own heart was right. David says, I'm going to praise you for two things, Lord. You've taken my guilt away and you have broken my willful spirit. New Testament says, Those who exalt themselves, the Lord will humble. And those who humble themselves, the Lord will exalt. Christ left the right hand of our Heavenly Father and humbled himself and took on the form of a man. And for that reason, God what? Raised him above every other name in all existence. David says, Lord, you have broken my spirit. I was proud. I didn't want any of this. But you sent the prophet Nathan. He confronted me with this. I am broken before you. That broken spirit, that contrite heart, is all the sacrifice our Heavenly Father is looking for. Until we're ready to do that, those things are going to be in the way of our relationship with Him. We've all got things in our hearts. Some are great, some are small. You may have been harboring something for the last 40 years that you just can't you know, you've, you've buried it, you've hidden it away, you don't want anybody to see it. The Lord knows it's there and he's calling on you to confess and seek his forgiveness. And I can, I can promise you this. You'll be on that journey and say, Lord, you have brought me to the end of this. And what will you find at the end of that journey? There's our Heavenly Father. And he's waiting for you. And he's got the forgiveness for you. And there's that relief from the guilt. There's not a partial release. Lord, I'm only going to confess a little bit. And if I can't sleep, I'll confess a little bit more. No, he says, confess it all to me. And you'll find forgiveness. And the joy of your salvation will be restored. So let's pray. Lord, you call each of us by name. 
and you change our hearts. You draw us unto yourself, and there's this great salvation. And sometimes throughout our Christian lives, we do very stupid things. We stray. We do things that we think nobody else knows about, and we harbor them in our, in our hearts, and, but yet you are aware of these things. And you say, you know what? I'm here. I have forgiven your sin. Confess it and find release. Find a relief from the burden and the guilt that you, you experience. Now, it might be a difficult journey for us, but the Lord says, there I am. I'm waiting for you at the end. I've got my arms out. In fact, as I see you coming like the father and the prodigal son, I'm going to run and get you. And I'm going to sustain you through it. And you will know me at a deeper and richer level. Heavenly Father, you, you want our hearts broken. You want our hearts contrite. And you are just waiting for that so that you might build us up and restore this great joy of our salvation. Hear the cry of our hearts today, Lord, that we might know forgiveness, that we might know the joy of our salvation, that it might be restored to us, that we might walk in holiness and uprightness before you, that our lives would be devoted to the things of Christ and for his glory. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.